Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 6 through 23. And we're going to continue in our series in Nehemiah. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Good morning. Good morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Nehemiah this morning. It's a study that focuses on a time in Israel's history about 2,500 years ago. It's a time where God's people had a problem. They had this vision for what God's people could look like as a community, as a society. But it was a community and a society that would be driven by the word of God, the law of God. They had this glorious vision of this group of people relating to each other like God relates to them. A place where literally God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. They had this glorious vision, but the place where they were supposed to build at Jerusalem had no walls, had no way of protecting and guarding this community. And so it would just be overrun by anyone at any time. God laid it on Nehemiah's heart to come to Jerusalem, 1,000 miles away, and to help the people build up the walls so that they could build their identity as the people of God. And when the people heard this from Nehemiah, they embraced the vision. They threw themselves into 
working on the wall. They started to make progress. Verse 6 from our passage today, as they, they got the wall about half as high as it needed to be. They were linking the various parts of it all together, all around the city. And you would think at this point that this would just be smooth sailing, right? The people of God have heard something from God. They're doing what God wants. They're loving him. They're loving each other. They're building the kingdom, advancing the kingdom of God. Life should just be easier, and you read chapter 4 and you realize it's anything but easier. There's all kinds of opposition that they're facing. Opposition not only from outside, opposition from also from inside. Outside, as the, that map that Luke showed us last week demonstrates, they're ringed by enemies. Actually, in today's passage, you discover that those enemies are north, south, east, and west. And those enemies are angry that this wall is being built. Last week, it was sort of just a, a low-level anger. They were mocking the people of God. This week, verse 7, now that they're seeing the walls getting higher, they're not just angry, they're very angry. And that cold war that they started of insults is about to turn hot. Verse 8, they're plotting to fight against Jerusalem. Their goal, verse 11, is to kill people in order to put an end to this work. And they're not real quiet about this objective. Verse 12, the Jews who lived near them came to Nehemiah ten times more than just once or twice, they came to Nehemiah to let him know the danger that Jerusalem was in. When you start to build the kingdom of God in your own life, when you start to put into practice the things that God has put on your heart, you should expect to have opposition. You should expect this external resistance. But you need to expect more than just external opposition. Recognize that people are also facing internal enemies. The enemy's voices are not just out there anymore. Instead, those enemy's voices are now inside of the people. Verse 10, in Judah, in and among the people, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. You realize here the people are discouraged. They started strong. Physically, now they're wearing down. Every day, they're going out, they're sifting through these scattered stones, trying to find some that actually are usable, that can be uh, brought back. They have to lug them, carry them, drag them back to the wall, and then do it again. And it starts to feel endless to them. They're feeling like this is hopeless. And so they start to say to themselves, our strength is failing. There's too much rubble. We'll never be able to do this. That's their self-talk. That's what they're meditating all day long, turning it over and over and over inside of their heads. They keep repeating to themselves, our strength is failing, too much trouble, we'll never be able to do this. Now, if you were reading this whole chapter from beginning to end, not like we've done with breaking it up, by the time you hit verse 10, you'd say, wait a minute, I, I've heard this before. God's people are now saying this in verse 10, but verse 2, we heard exactly the same things, but it came out of the mouth of our enemies. You go back to verse 2, and Sanballat is standing out there in front of his army, and he taunted God's people by saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You start to hear similarities between what the people are saying in verse 10 and what their enemy was saying in verse 2. Verse 2, he calls them feeble Jews. Verse 10, they say, our strength is failing. It's the same thing. It's coming from two different directions, one outside, one from inside. Verse 2, he points out that the building material is just these heaps of rubbish. 
verse 10, they say, there's too much rubble. Again, they're seeing the same thing and assessing it the same way. Verse 2, he says, will they restore it for themselves? Verse 10, by ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. God's people are now saying exactly the same thing that their enemies have been saying. We're worn out. There's too much to do. We can't get it done on our own. They're saying the same things, but coming from them, it's worse. See, when your enemies say stuff, that's external. Those words hit you, they hurt, they sting, but you can ignore them if you want, or, or you can at least start to argue and fight with them. It's a different matter, however, when those words now find a home inside of you, when they lodge so deeply inside of you that they now start to come up out of you. When that happens, when your enemies shape your vocabulary, it means that you have adopted their way of seeing the world. You're using their words to describe your world, which means you're now looking at your world through their eyes. You're seeing it from their perspective. And when that happens, the enemies of your soul don't need to do anything else. They've already won. It is impossible to persevere through the hard times in life if you are saying to yourself regularly that you're feeble, that you have nothing to work with, and there's no way to handle what's in front of you. When you set out to do the will of God, you can expect times when you're going to feel overwhelmed. Times when you think, I don't have the resources that it takes to keep doing what God has put on my heart. It's the second thing Nehemiah is facing. He's got these external opposition. He's got this internal weakness among the people. And then along comes someone else, and they offer him a way out. Verse 12, the Jews who lived near their enemies came and said to Nehemiah ten times, you must return to us. You need to return to us. We hear them plotting against you. They're coming to kill you. You need to get out of there. You need to return to us. And what are they doing? They're saying there's an alternative. You don't have to face those hardships in life. You could make this easier on yourself. Here's a way to escape the opposition that's coming. And you can guarantee when you set out to do what God has put on your heart, that there will be these very attractive, very appealing alternatives, ways that you don't have to keep going down this hard road ways that you can avoid it. That's Nehemiah's world. He has these external threats. He's got this internal discouragement, and he's got an attractive alternative. And you read this chapter, and you think to yourself, really? This is what it means to follow God? Put yourself in Nehemiah's place. You're seeing the threats, the discouragement, the temptation. Wouldn't you start to have doubts that maybe this is not what God's doing? Maybe God's up to something else. Wouldn't you start to think, I thought God put something on my heart to do for him. I thought I saw God backing my play. I thought I saw the good hand of my God making a way for me to actually be able to do this. I thought the hard part would be connecting with God, figuring out what it was that he wanted me to do. I thought the hard part would be getting here, rallying the troops, getting them all set. But now that I've lined myself up with him and we've started down this road, shouldn't it be easier? Where is the good hand of my God now? Why isn't he doing anything about this? Isn't there a sense of, of, of being surprised at how much harder it is? Aren't you surprised when your life is that much harder after you've set out to pursue the Lord? A lot of people are. A lot of people are not ready for how hard it is to live the Christian life. They're not expecting hardship. It surprises them. 
Maybe you've had this experience. You feel like God's been putting it on your heart to love somebody who's pretty close to you. Maybe it's your spouse or somebody who lives in your house or a, a dorm mate. Um, maybe it's your child or maybe it's your parents. But you feel like God's put something, put it on your heart to love this person like he has loved you. That you need to lay your life down for them. You need to serve them. You need to be humble with them. You need to listen to them. You're convicted, this is really what I need to do. You're convinced this really would be a good thing to do. And so you start thinking about it. You start planning for it. You allow your mind to drift all day long back to this thing that you're thinking and planning to do. You come home, you're all pumped up to, to love, and the moment that you enter the door, this other person starts picking on you. And they start unpacking all the things that you did wrong before you left that morning. And things just go downhill from there. They're upset about their day. They take it out on you. You're the nearest one to them. They don't notice anything that you try to do. You don't get credit for all the things that you're trying to do. Instead, they let you know all night long there isn't anything that you can do right, and there is no amount of stuff that you could do that would ever be enough. And you start to wonder, what, what do I do with this? I just wanted to do what God put on my heart. But I'm not strong enough for this. I don't have enough resources. I can't do this on my own. Love them? I don't even like them right now. It's all I can do just to stay in the house. You came home with something that God put on your heart, something that would build a good relationship, a healthy community that would affect the place where you live. You thought you were doing the will of God, something that he would want, something that he would like. And life got harder, not easier. How does that make any sense? Or you decide to double down on your devotions. You want to build this time where it's just you and just God, and you're just connecting with him. You've been feeling convicted, like your, your soul's a little dry. You really need to have this time with the Lord. You, it's out, something, actually, that you really want. And so you rearrange your world. You make time for this. You decide, here's the time, first thing in the morning, set your alarm, and then you oversleep. And the coffee maker doesn't work. And the passage that you're reading has got to be the dullest one that you've ever seen in the scripture. The only thing, actually, that you can focus on is that problem that you've had at work all week long, and you're starting to actually solve it as you sit there trying to read the Bible. You have no idea what you're reading. You started to do what God put on your heart, and life got harder. Everything then starts to conspire against you. Or you start to realize, you know, I'm kind of being dishonest with people. When my Christian friends ask me how I'm doing, I have my Christian friend answer. And when my non-Christian friends ask me how I'm doing, I have a different answer. And the Lord's putting it on my heart that I really ought to be more authentic. I ought to be more genuine. I ought to have the same response regardless of who it is that's asking me. I'm going to actually start doing that. And then you walk into work, and there's Larry the Loudmouth over there in the kitchenette, and he had a real bad run-in over the weekend with a Christian. They're all hypocrites, and he can't understand why anybody would believe in, in the modern age in things like miracles. And as you're trying to sneak over to your cube, somebody looks over and says, hey, how was your weekend? What would you do on Sunday? You think, this is not the way I wanted to start it with being authentic. What is God doing? He put something on my heart. Life got harder. Or you gather up your courage. You decide, I really want to reach my neighbors for Christ, but I don't really know them. Let's invite them over. Let's have this barbecue for the neighborhood, get to know 
the people live around us. And so, and so you, you ask people, they're all excited, you set a date, a time, the day comes and the refrigerator breaks. You cannot get the grill started, nobody knows where the vacuum cleaner went. And the kids absolutely trash the house. You're frazzled, you've put everything back together, it's time for people to come, and no one comes. They're not 15 minutes late, they're not half an hour late, nobody comes. And you think to yourself, wait, this, this is not how it's supposed to be. I followed through. I had faith. It shouldn't be this hard, should it? You realize, actually, no, it should. Once you start to unpack it, once you start to think about it, you realize that what you're experiencing in those moments is normal. Think about it this way. When you are not lined up with God, when you are not doing the kinds of things that he is doing on this earth. Who is it that you're in opposition with? You're in opposition with God, and God opposes you. God puts himself, blocks your path, does not allow you to continue down that road. But God in his opposition is what? He's kind. He's patient. He lets you see his goodness and his character in order to what? To woo you back to himself. So that you stop going down that road. And when you finally do see how good he is, how much better he is than anything else that you would choose, when you embrace him, you turn from what you're doing, you embrace this amazing God, you no longer have opposition with him. Now you have joy, you have peace with him. But in that moment, there is now opposition with everything else in the world that wants nothing to do with God. There's opposition with everything else in this world that up to that moment had ignored you and left you alone because you were running your own way, had nothing to do with God, and, and, and everything else in the world that hates God was good with that. Now, there are real spiritual forces of evil at work. They used to be happy with the way that you're living, and so they didn't try to make your life hard. Now they do. You find evil lurking deep inside of you. It's tempting you constantly to push God away and to find more satisfaction, more fulfillment in things that have nothing to do with him than you find in him. You start to discover that this world is populated with people who are not interested in the goodness and the beauty that God would offer. Instead, they want to redefine their own goodness and beauty. And what do they do? They pressure you to join them in that. In other words, in this world, you will always be opposed by something. You're either going to be opposed by God or you're going to be opposed by evil. But you won't feel evil's opposition until what? Until you reject it. Until you want nothing to do with it. And in that moment, when you turn to God, life gets harder. And we're not fair to people who come to Christ. We don't tell them this. This is part of the way that it is. When you embrace God, his enemies now become your enemies. And they are out to stop you if, as you're trying to pursue him. So when you set out to do something out of love for the Lord, something in line with what the Lord himself is doing, expect pushback. Expect it, even when it seems over the top, even when it seems unreasonable. Because evil is over the top and evil is unreasonable. Again, you just think about what's happening in Jerusalem. They're building this wall, and, and what's happening? The enemies of the people of God are doing what? They're, they're getting angry because a wall is being built. And the higher the wall goes, the angrier they get. And you think, that's, just, that's unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. That's the nature of evil. 
You can find it everywhere if you start to look for it. A couple weeks ago, Hannah Sampson reported for the Washington Post, and she wrote about a group called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. It's a nonprofit group that works, according to their website, quote, to educate the public on matters relating to non-theism, unquote. And part of that pressure that they try to exert is to write to hotels and pressure hotels to take Bibles out of the little uh, nightstand next to the bed. You, you, you know, the, you, you've been out to hotels and you, you open the drawer and there's a Bible there. They're not happy with that and so they send letters. Quote, we don't want to pay high prices to rent a room and then find this sometimes open Bible when we go to open the drawer and to be confronted with this book that is so primitive and very anti our rights, unquote. Foundation also sells $3 stickers that you can purchase, stickers that can be used in hotel rooms. You can take them with you, you can put them on the Bible that you find there. It's a sticker of a skull and crossbones with the words, warning, literal belief in this book may endanger your health and life. And you just take a step back from that moment and you think, that's a lot of energy. <laughs> that's a lot of investment into opposition that very frankly, I, I, that doesn't make any sense. See, if I don't believe something is true and I stumble across it, I'm not personally offended. I don't get angry. If I'm gonna open a bedside table and discover a Quran there, I'm not offended. It's not the word of God, and so I'm not gonna to turn to it in the middle of the night uh, for any kind of comfort if I'm anxious or worried. But I'm also not purchasing stickers so that I can make sure that it's all over. That, that doesn't make any sense. It's a level of opposition and animosity that's beyond what that des deserves. But it is what evil does. Because evil is angry whenever it encounters something that points to God in this world. And the reason it's angry is it has an agenda, which is to remove any hint of God from his world. And so it works hard to ruin the beauty of this world, the world that reflects him so that you can't see him as clearly. It works to ridicule any mention of him. It works to offer you substitutes and say, this, this is so much better than he ever could be. It works to exploit human beings who best reflect him in his glory. It works to destroy human beings. It works to silence God's voice everywhere it can be found because the goal of evil is to oppose him and to eliminate him. Now, join him. <laughs> Join God in what he's doing, and evil will oppose you on as well. Just count on it. Your life's going to be harder. You decide to follow God, and, and this confusion that Nehemiah is facing is going to be your world as well. And in that moment, it is so easy to listen to that voice that offers that path of least resistance and take it. And Nehemiah doesn't go there. He hears all this noise swirling around him, and his response is active resistance. Verse 13, he's just detailed all of these threats, both external and internal. He's talked about the enticing options that he's facing. Verse 13 starts with so. So, in light of all of this, you could say, therefore, based on everything else that I'm facing, so, in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. 
So, therefore, based on everything that I am facing, the only logical next step is active resistance. You think, wait, no, <laughs> there's a lot of other steps. Why, why this one? Why did you think that that was a good idea? Not just why do you think it's a good idea. Why is it a godly idea? Why is this not just pig-headedness? Something that's actually going to get all of us killed. Here's where you can't forget what we've already learned in the earlier chapters. Just to review very fast. In chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed. And as he prayed, he had this growing desire inside of him to do something for Jerusalem. He had an internal desire for what God was up to. Chapter 2, he tested this internal desire out, and he saw God moving things out in the larger world so that he could actually act on that desire. Later in chapter 2, he floats this idea past the rest of God's people, and they all agree that it's what God is doing. Those three things help you understand what you should be doing in this life. When those three things come together, this internal desire for something that God's up to, that external confirmation from the people of God and the external activities of God making it possible for you to do that, when those three things come together, it tells you this is what God is doing. And for Nehemiah, those things have not changed. The only thing that's changed in his world is it got a little harder. It got a lot harder. But that hardness does not change any of those things that brought Nehemiah to this point. And so he's looking at this and saying, full speed ahead. Now this is how you discern the difference between stubbornness and perseverance. Stubbornness, not a godly trait, not something you, you want. Perseverance is a godly trait. It's a characteristic that you do want. Stubbornness is what? It's when you only have your own desire pushing you forward. You can't see that God is actually doing that. The rest of God's people are not on board with you. It's just you pressing forward. Perseverance is when you have the desire inside to do something that's godly, but you can also sit back and you can say, I see God here, 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 and God's people are cheering me on. Perseverance, then, is thoughtful and assesses. Here's what I see in the real world. Stubbornness is just that bullheaded, we're just going to keep on going because this is what I want to do. Perseverance isn't just about you. It actually incorporates the rest of the community of God. And that's important because you're not just doing what God's put on your heart for your sake alone. You do what God's put on your heart for the sake of other people. Verse 14, Nehemiah is motivating the people to fight. And he says to them, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight. Fight for what? For your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In other words, you're not fighting for the sake of a principle. You're not fighting to be right. You're not fighting because we started this and it'll look really bad if we back down now. You're fighting for the sake of people. You're fighting so that the community of God is actually better off after you're done fighting than when you started. And so you have to keep asking yourself when you're trying to assess, what, what do I do now that life's really hard? Who am I doing this for? Is it just for me to make myself feel better? Or is there a payoff here for the people of God? Actually, you want to think even bigger than that. You want to think, is there a payoff here for those who are not yet the people of God? 
because you realize evil doesn't just target God's people. Evil targets all people. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Every human being declares, here is what God is like. And so evil goes after every single human being to either eliminate them or dehumanize them. And so evil enters into people, it enters into societies to ruin individual lives, to dissolve relationships. And it pushes each society as far down that road, that dehumanization road as possible. I was watching a music video the other day. It's by one of the artists who's won a lot of awards recently. And I do that occasionally because I want to hear the kinds of messages that our society both promotes, but also the kind of messages that our society values, that they come after and they give an award to, because those are the messages that say, this speaks to us. This is what we value. This is who we are. And I drop in on that world regularly because I want to understand who is it that we're trying to reach? What are the messages in this culture, this society? How does the gospel enter into those? So I'm listening, watching this particular song and video. It's one of the artists most popular, and it's all about this, um, it, it's proud. It, it's about how they are destroying every relationship that they are in. And they're destroying every relationship because they are stronger and they are more powerful than all the other people involved. And as I'm watching, I'm listening, it's very clear that there's only one person in the whole world that this video creates that you would want to be. Maybe. It, it, that's the person singing. And the reason that you would only want to be them is because even though they take hits from other people, they still come out on top of every social interaction. You step back from that. Allow yourself to think. You step back from the lyrics from the video, and you realize that that vision of what the world could be, that's what these videos are, right? They're, they're a, a, an, op, a, a, an example of this is a world that we could create if we wanted to. You step back from that vision of what the world could be, and you re realize that it requires that for every one person who comes out on top, there are masses of people who are devastated. That to have the best in that kind of world means that you have to live in such a way that you leave this trail of bodies behind you. Maybe more accurately, the, a crowd of bodies around you. A whole community of bodies. See, in that vision of the world, that vision of what the world could be, you're either eating or you're being eaten. You're either hurting or you're being hurt. Strength and power are harnessed for you at the same moment that they are harnessed against everyone else. And I watch and I listen, and I don't want to be part of that world. I don't want to be anyone that the singer is talking about, anyone that they're gloating over, anyone that they're taking advantage of, anyone that they're exploiting. I don't want to be on the receiving end of what they're dishing out. But the longer that I think about it, I also don't want to be the singer. I don't want to live in this world where the only way that I can survive is by manipulating other people more than I'm manipulated. I don't want to live in a world that I can only make my way through if I'm hurting other people more than I'm being hurt. 
I don't want to live in a world where relationships are measured on a winner-takes-all basis. I don't want to live in a community like that. This singer is extremely talented. They're, they're a brilliant communicator. I really get why they want awards. But they've harnessed their talents to a vision of community that is repulsive. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to build that kind of world. I want to take my talents and my gifts and construct that world. I want something better. I want a community that the Word of God talks about. A community where the drift of people is against their natural selfishness. I want a community where people care for others, not for what they can get out of others. I want a community where people refuse to back down from injustice, where they have the courage to stand up to it rather than the, the weakness of perpetuating it. I want a community where people embrace each other's differences without embracing each other's sin because they recognize that sin destroys everything that God would build. I want a community where goodness and holiness are pursued, where they're held up as something valuable, not mocked. I want a community where forgiveness is asked for, where it's freely given. See, that's part of the community that God longs to build. It's a community that evil cannot produce. You need to keep moving forward with whatever God has put on your heart that contributes to that community, that actually builds that kind of community. You need to do that even when times are tough. You need to do that not just for your sake, not just for your friend's sake. You need to do that for the sake of a watching world, for the people who are not in this room right now, for the people out there, because they need to see that world, that kind of community. They need to hear it. What do they have? They have these fake visions that are repulsive. We could offer them something better. An invitation that says, here, this is what God is like. I will try my best to treat you the way that he's treated me. It'd be better than anything else that you can find out there. That's what God is doing in this earth. That's what he's calling his people to do, even when they face hard things and when they face all kinds of oppression. So how do you do that? Four things really quickly. Four things. You need to remember the Lord. You need to trust him and act. You will have to sacrifice. And you can't do it alone. First, you need to remember the Lord. Nehemiah organizes the people around Jerusalem. He posts them in verse 13 with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And then he tells them, verse 14, do not be afraid of them, those enemies out there. And you think... <laughs> Why not? That, I mean, that seems like a really good idea right now. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. What is it gets rid of fear when you are being opposed? It's remembering the Lord who is great and awesome. Great and awesome is language, actually, that you find back in a book called Deuteronomy. It took place a lot earlier. Chapter 7, verse 21 it's in a passage that describes how God has rescued his people from slavery by defeating the most powerful nation on earth at the time. That's what his great and awesomeness means. It means that he delivers his people. So if you're afraid when life gets harder, it's because you're not remembering. 
you're not remembering the Lord who is great and awesome. You've forgotten the Lord. You've forgotten that what you're trying to do is really his idea, that it's him who put that on your heart. You forgot that. You started to think, no, that's my idea, and now I'm getting opposition. In other words, you grew too big in your own eyes, and he grew too small. The solution is not, look at all the guys around us with swords and spears and bows. Maybe that's big enough to, to tackle what we're facing. No, the solution is look higher. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and confess that you didn't think he was big enough and ask him to forgive you. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and ask him to give you strength to believe that he actually wants to see you building in his kingdom much more than you want to see you building in his kingdom. That's number one. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. Number two, you have to trust God and act. Those two go together, and they march together throughout this entire chapter. Verse 9, the people prayed and set a guard. They didn't pray or set a guard. They prayed and set a guard. Verse 14, they need to remember the Lord and fight if they're attacked. Not one or the other, but both together. Verse 20, if they're attacked, they need to rally to the place of battle knowing that God will fight for them. They have to trust God and act, not one or the other. Some of you are more comfortable with trusting God but not acting, just sort of hoping that he'll do whatever needs to take place. Others of you don't even think about trusting, you just sort of act, and both of these are actually have to be held together. Trust God, and because God acts in his world, you now are able to act. If you want to keep moving forward despite the hardships when you're serving God, you have to live believing that God acts in his world, and therefore, you follow along. So first, you need to remember the Lord. Second, you need to trust him and act. Third, you need to sacrifice your comforts. You can't fool yourself into thinking that because you start making headway against the hardships, that they're just going to stop. That's not possible in this life. And I know that's not what you really want to hear this morning. But evil is unrelenting. It's not going to quit. It's not going to give up. It's not going to give you an easy life. And so if you want to have a, a life that's worthwhile, that builds the kinds of things that God is building, you're going to have to sacrifice your comforts. Verse 17, those who carried burdens had to do so with one hand while they held a weapon in the other. They intentionally made their lives harder so that they could keep going forward. Verse 21, they labored from the break of dawn until the stars came out. These are people who are already tired. That's already part of their self-talk. But they kept working these long, exhausting days. Verse 22, they stopped going back to the villages overnight. They stayed in Jerusalem so that they could help defend it if it was attacked. Verse 23, Nehemiah and the men with him did not get undressed at night. They didn't go anywhere without their weapons. All of the people gave up an easier life. They increased their own burdens. They were ready to drop everything and defend themselves and each other, and they never let their guard down, and that's exhausting. And that's what this lifelong war on evil takes, if you want to make a difference. So number one, you have to remember the Lord. Number two, you have to trust him and act. Number three, you have to sacrifice your comforts. And number four, you have to do it with others. You can't go it alone. 
The Israelites didn't. Okay, Nehemiah may have led them, but they were only successful because they were all in this together. Verse 9, they prayed together. Verse 13, they took up their guard positions according to their clans. They served side by side with people that they already knew, people whose lives they had already connected with. Verse 14, they knew that they were fighting for each other, not against each other. Verse 15, they returned to the work of building together after the threat passed initially. And you can keep tracking it the rest of the, throughout the rest of the chapter. They did not have success because of any one person. It only worked because they all did it together. You will never, you can underline never, you will never persevere through the difficulties of the life of faith. You will never make a difference in your life or a difference in the life of anyone else if you think that you're going to do it on your own. You'll never be wise enough on your own. You'll never be strong enough on your own. You'll never be able to work these truths down into your life, out of your head, down into the rest of your life on your own. You can't live the Christian life on your own. You have to have the support. You have to have the help of the rest of the body of Christ. You need to be in community. You need regular times where you're discussing these things with each other, where you're challenging each other, when you're encouraging each other, when you're investing in each other, when you're discipling each other. We have to do this together, not simply as friends. Friends are good. I like being friends. But we will not make a difference in this region simply as friends. But only if we're comrades, colleagues, working together to see God's name glorified. If you're going to press forward, if you're going to build a society that's worth living in, you have to remember the Lord. You have to trust and act. You have to live a life of sacrifice, and you have to do it together. That's what it took in Nehemiah's day. People of God never outgrow that. It's exactly what Jesus was doing when he built a community. You read through the life of Jesus. He prayed for his guys. He trusted the Lord God in what he was doing. He acted, and he did all of that to build a glorious community of God. Jesus surrounded himself constantly with people, was living with people all the time, sacrificed everything that he had to give that community life. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for what he had in mind. He told his disciples earlier that he was going to prepare a place for them. He was going to build a new creation. He had something in mind much bigger than a city that was just ringed around with a little wall. He was going to build a new heavens and a new earth, and they were going to inherit this earth. Why? So that they can live out this glorious community with him and each other forever. The only problem with that plan is that they couldn't get in. Because each one of them had times when they had hated God's agenda. When they had thought they had a better plan, and what God had decided for them upset them. Made them angry, irrationally angry. And their unreasonable anger stirred up God's righteous anger against them. So how are they going to live now with this God, this one who uses his great and his awesome power against unrighteousness? How can they be friends with him after they've been his enemy? It wasn't enough for Jesus to pray for them. It wasn't enough for Jesus to guard them. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to teach them. If they were going to live with him and be with him, he had to do something 
about God's anger. And so he went to the cross, alone, without his community. And on the cross, God did not fight for him. This God who uses his great and awesome power on behalf of his people did not fight for the one righteous person that there's been on the planet. Instead, he unleashed his great and awesome power, his fiery judgment, his wrath, for the exactly the same reasons that he had before. In order to set his people free from slavery that they could not free themselves from. And he directed that against Jesus because Jesus had taken all the evil of his people onto himself. This is how their evil disappears. The pathway to that new creation led through the cross. And because that pathway led through the cross, that's where Jesus went. Why? So that he could open the door of community up to you. So that you could enter into that community. So that you could have confidence that he will be great and awesome on your behalf. So that he will fight for you, rescue you, and deliver you so that you can face the opposition and so that you can build. We're about to share communion this morning. Let me invite you, take a few moments now. Get your heart ready. Remember this God. Confess the times where you've not been interested in him or you've wanted something else. Confess the times where you've been too worn out and, and you have given in to the opposition. And then invite him, Lord God, make me stronger. Put something on my heart for you, for your kingdom. And enable me to live in such a way that I see your glory go forward on this earth. Let's take a few moments now.